We turn in the scriptures to Psalm 26. We'll read the psalm together and consider it as a whole. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers. I have hated the congregation of evildoers, and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, in whose hands is mischief and their right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in mine integrity. Redeem me, and be merciful unto me. My foot standeth in an even place. In the congregations will I bless the Lord. Thus far we read. Beloved in the Lord, the sermon tonight is preparatory as we look ahead to the celebration of the Lord's Supper Coming to the Lord's Supper and partaking of the sacrament requires certain spiritual preparation. And a big part of that spiritual preparation is the spiritual exercise of self-examination. We're familiar with that because we are called to do so prior to the celebration of the Supper four times a year. We want to remember that this calling to self-examination and spiritual preparation is not just a mere tradition, but it is a biblical calling. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.28, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Sermon on Psalm 26, therefore, is going to have that focus. There's a lot of beautiful things in Psalm 26 that could be the focus of other sermons. For example, verses 6 through 8. We have a beautiful expression of the psalmist's love for the communion of the saints. In the verses prior to that, we have a confession of the psalmist and a steadfast resolve not to keep wicked company. But it's especially in verses 1 and 2 that we have a petition for the Lord to examine and to prove the psalmist. And that petition really is the leading idea of the psalm and that's what we're going to focus on tonight. It's a petition that the psalmist makes which we must also make as we enter into a week of focused self-examination. The psalm then reminds us of one very important thing about our self-examination. 
our spiritual preparation for the supper of the Lord. As with any spiritual exercise to which we are called, we don't do it by ourselves. We don't do it by our own strength, but by the strength of God. Crucial to our self-examination is divine examination. For our self-examination to be successful and to be fruitful, we must be examined by God Himself. That's the only way we're really going to see anything or profit at all from the exercise. And that's that's what David prays for here in verses 1 and especially verse 2. He says, Lord, examine me. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. And so we take that expression in verse 2 and we make that the theme of the sermon tonight. The petition, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. I changed the three points after I sent them into the bulletin, so they're a little bit different. The first point is a petition for vindication. Secondly, a petition for examination. And thirdly, a confident petition. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. A petition for vindication, a petition for examination, a confident petition. Psalm 26 begins with a petition that might sound a bit strange to our ears or even wrong to our theological sensibilities. The psalmist, who is David, prays, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. Judge me, for I am a man of integrity, David says. And that word integrity here in the Hebrew really means wholeness. And the idea is that David is saying, I have lived in a sincere and godly way. I have comported myself as a man of honesty. My conduct has been consistently upright according to thy word. Judge me, for I have walked in mine integrity. Perhaps that sounds at first reading a little bit like David is promoting his own righteousness before God. And we wonder, how can a man say such things? And then maybe at first reading that discomfort grows a little bit as we read on in verse 3. Thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. David says, I've walked, I've lived according to thy truth. There are some men who like to talk about thy truth, but they don't live it. There's a warning, always important for the church throughout the ages. Love God's truth, confess God's truth, delight to talk about God's truth. But if your concern with truth ends at talking, then you may be among the people mentioned in verse 4, the vain persons who only talk but do not walk. David talked of God's truth, loved God's truth, and lived God's truth. Verses 4 and 5, I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers. Dissemblers are two-faced people, dishonest men, hypocrites. 
David is saying, I have not taken part in their works. I have not joined their company. I have hated the congregation of evildoers. I despise what they get together to do, their plots, the mischief that they hatch against their neighbor. I will not sit with the wicked. Verse 8, David says, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house, the place where thy honor dwelleth. I love to gather with thy people. I rejoice in corporate worship. I love thee, O my God, and I seek thy glory. David is furnishing the evidences of what he states in verse 1, that he has walked in integrity. What do we do with that? It seems at first reading as if David is being like a Pharisee saying, Lord, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, not as these vain persons, not as these dissemblers, not as these evildoers, not as these wicked. I'm entirely different. Crucial to understanding verse 1 of Psalm 26 is that David here is not vaunting his own righteousness, nor is he petitioning God to justify him, that is, declare him righteous on the basis of his own works. After all, the David who wrote Psalm 26 is also the David who wrote Psalm 143, where he says in verse 2, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. When David says, I've walked in my integrity, he's not saying, I've lived a sinless life or I'm faultless. And the context of the psalm proves this. You go down to verse 9 and David prays there, gather not my soul with sinners. In verse 9, David isn't setting himself apart from sinners as if he's in a different category, but he's acknowledging that God could very well and justly gather his soul with the rest of sinful mankind and condemn him. David acknowledges that he is a sinner. Verse 11. Even as David confesses his resolve to continue to walk in his integrity. He acknowledges his need for mercy. Redeem me and be merciful unto me. He says. David is not deluded by any soul-destroying notion that it is his own integrity that gets him saved or keeps him saved. What we need to see here in verse 1 is that David is petitioning God with respect to a concrete set of circumstances in his life. Those Circumstances are not explicitly made known to us here in the psalm. But it is evident from his description of these ungodly men. That David was being persecuted. David was being reproached. David was being unjustly slandered and maligned by foes, by enemies. And this is his response. He is going to God with a plea, a petition for vindication. And that's really what the word judge Here in verse 1 means when he says judge me. He's not saying justify me in the sense of declare me righteous. On the basis of what I've done. But he's saying vindicate my cause. Plead my cause and show that my cause is upright. Over against what my foes are saying. And what my foes are doing. 
Again, we don't know the background of Psalm 26, but if we rehearse in our minds what we know of David's life, we can probably think of a couple prominent times in David's life when he was hounded by wicked men, unjustly persecuted, unjustly slandered and maligned. Before he became king, when he was on the run from Saul, And the history we looked at last Sunday, later in David's reign, the insurrection and rebellion of his son Absalom. And it's possible that this psalm was written in connection with either of those events. That would make sense. The vain persons, the dissemblers that are spoken about in verses 4 and 5, the bloody men in whose hands are mischief, verses 9 and 10, all of that would fit either with Saul or with Absalom and his followers. In fact, a couple of things in the psalm may tip the scale a little bit in the direction of the history of Absalom's rebellion as being the background of this psalm. In verse 10, David mentions men whose right hand is full of bribes. The idea being that they are dishonest, they are two-faced, they bribe to win others to their cause. Or even that they may have accepted bribes. Betrayal, dishonesty. And is that not what David was suffering when Absalom stole the hearts of Israel and turned so many against David? Even that close counselor Ahithophel who betrayed him? And then verse 8, where David speaks about his love for God's house. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. That seems to imply that at this time in David's life, the tabernacle had been set up in Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant was there, the place where God's honor dwelt. And so that would tip a little bit in the direction of this psalm arising from the historical circumstances surrounding Absalom's rebellion. And so now we think about all that we saw last week when we looked at 1 Samuel 15 in connection with Psalm 3. And how David's foes slandered his character, attacked him unjustly. They were treacherous. They said there is no help for him in God, that bloody man. And though David was a sinful man, yes he was. David was the first to acknowledge those sins. Remember how he responded to Shimei and his cursing. But there we also saw David, by the grace of God, walking in his integrity. Not cursing back. A soft answer in the face of such wrath. David walked in his integrity. Even as his foes rebelled and accused him and slandered him and maligned him. And that's the idea here in verse 1. David David is not saying, God, look how good I am. Look how righteous I am. Now accept me and reward me with salvation because I've earned it. David is saying, Lord, I've walked in my integrity and behold how my enemies assail me. Judge my cause. Plead my cause. Arise. Show that thou art for me. Despite what my enemies say. That thou art against me. Vindicate me. In the eyes. And before. 
my foes. And whether the background is the history of Saul's pursuit of David or Absalom's attempted overthrow of David, God would answer that petition. God would elevate David to be king and bring Saul's devices to naught. God would thwart the rebellion of Absalom and vindicate David in the eyes of Israel. And so the psalm begins with a petition for vindication. And there's a couple of applications for us tonight. As Christians in the world, if we walk with integrity, we will, we will be persecuted by the words, the actions, the mockery, even the violence of unjust and wicked men. Integrity, according to God's law, gets the eye of the devil. The devil despises it when there is a child of God who by the grace of God walks in a way that is consistent and in line with God's Word, when there's a child of God who lives an honest life, when there's a child of God who walks in integrity, in truthfulness, who loves God's truth, confesses God's truth, and lives that truth out in his or her life, that's going to draw the eyes of the devil. That puts a big target on the Christian's back. And the devil marshals all of his resources to try to undo that Christian, to oppress him or her, to so injure him or her with the words and actions of others that that person abandons his or her integrity or turns against God's word or sinks down into the pit of despair thinking that they are forsaken of God as the devil tried to do with David. And this psalm emphasizes to us that we have a God who is a just God and A God to whom we have recourse when the devil strikes, when the world bears its teeth, when we face those temptations of our sinful flesh, those temptations that say godliness does not profit. Walk after the devices of your own heart. The psalm instructs us where to go. Go to God, your just God, for strength. Go to Him with a petition for vindication when you are unjustly pursued, unjustly maligned by others in the world, or even others in, sadly, your own circle, or your own family, or the community of faith. Don't throw aside your integrity and take matters into your own hand and anoint yourself the avenger. But look unto God, the just God, the judge who does justice always. And whether whether He vindicates now or later or in His wisdom it waits till judgment day. God does justice 
for his people. And we see David here resting in that. I have trusted in the Lord, he says at the end of verse 1. He prays this petition. And before he sees any results, he says, I trust in the Lord. I give this to the Lord. And therefore, I shall not slide. I shall not slip. When my enemies taunt me, when the devil tempts me, petition for vindication, instructive for us. A second application in this connection. David's petition for vindication sets forth the fruits of God's grace working in him. David is not lying. When he says, I have walked in mine integrity. And there's an application for us. This is the wonder that God's grace does in the life of the redeemed child of God. The fruit of the Spirit is that we can and we do walk in integrity. We understand that's not sinlessness, that's not perfection, that's not a flawless life. Later in the catechism, when we get to the Ten Commandments, we look at Lord's Day 44, we will be reminded again that even the holiest men in this life have but a small beginning of the new obedience. But it's a real beginning. A real beginning of living according to all of God's commandments so that the child of God is called to and can, by the power of grace, live a life of integrity. And that means there's an implied call here for us as God's people to take seriously Strive for holiness. Be a man, a woman of integrity, honest, trustworthy, consistent in your conduct, in line with the Word of God. The sound reformed doctrine of of humankind's natural sinfulness and the doctrine of total depravity must not be pitted against the reality of God's transformative grace. Yes, we are by nature dead in sin. And yes, by nature we can do nothing good. But the grace of God gives us new life. The grace of God gives us the indwelling spirit so that as Ephesians 2 says, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath ordained that we should walk in them. And 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, we are new creatures in Christ. A life of integrity is our calling, and it's possible. And our indwelling sinfulness may never be used as an excuse to downplay this calling, as if it's really not possible, and therefore we really don't have to try very hard, or we don't have to concern ourselves that much with godly conduct. Not at all. Grace of God, the indwelling Spirit, and His work produces integrity. Let that be manifest in our lives as Christians. To tie it to the Lord's Supper, part of preparing to come to the table, part of our self examination. Searching myself. 
in determining, do I sincerely from the heart purpose henceforth to walk in true love towards God and my neighbor and to walk in holiness and obedience to God's commandments? It's important to God that there is that desire in our hearts. That should be the desire of the child of God. To live a holy life to the glory of God. Let us search for that. By God's grace, have that desire kindled and strengthened in us. And if we are secretly cherishing some sin in our heart, and we are justifying it, maybe misusing the doctrine of human sinfulness and total depravity to justify that sin as if I can't help it anyways, know that you are lying to yourself. And it is a dangerous thing to delude yourself. Repent, turn, and put away that sin by the grace of God. Let us come to the table as those who do not clutch sin to our bosoms, but as those whose hearts throb with the desire to please our God with a holy life, and who come, not because we are righteous in ourselves, but come with outstretched hands, the hungry mouth of faith open wide to receive the good gifts of God, that by His grace we may grow more and more in that grace and bear fruit to the glory of our God. Psalm begins then with that petition for vindication. The psalmist moves on and his prayer, his petition quickly becomes more introspective. That is, he looks inside of himself. And he says in verse 2 now, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Here, David prays for a thorough, divine examination of his whole being. And this is striking. In this psalm, David has prayed for vindication. He has attested to the uprightness of his walk over against the false accusations of his foes. And yet here we see David is not under any delusion that he is sinless or that his righteousness is such that he is good to go in the eyes of God. But he has a deep sense of his sinfulness and by the grace of God understands the deceitfulness of his own heart. And that he is prone to be blind to his own sin. Though he brings forth the evidences of God's grace at work in him, beautiful things, he has truly walked in integrity. Yet the psalmist recognizes that in his life there is more than what meets his eyes. And while he has walked in his integrity, yet he acknowledges the reality of his indwelling sinfulness. The reality that there is sin which he doesn't notice, or is blind to, or may even have deluded himself into ignoring. And so David 
in a spiritual frame of mind, in humility, petitions the Lord, examine me, O Lord, and prove me, try me, try my reins. Reins refer to the, the bowels, and in the Old Testament conception, the bowels are the, the seat of feeling and affection. Try my, my feelings, my affections. Are they in line with thy word and thy holiness? My heart, which is the core of my being, the center of my thoughts, from which flow all of the issues of life. David is looking inward. Examine not only my outward actions, O God, but search my heart. Examine my inmost being. Look all the way to the core of who I am. And show me what you find. That's the idea of examine, prove, try. Not because God has to learn what's in David. God knows. God sees the heart. As David would beautifully write in Psalm 139 verse 4, There is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. And the idea is, God so knows the heart that before a word even comes into our, our minds or leaps from our tongues, God already knows it. When David says, examine, prove, try me, he is saying, Lord, discover me to myself. Show me what is in me. Show me those hidden patterns of ungodly thinking or desiring. Disclose to me and set before my eyes perhaps that besetting sin that I've minimized so much that I've let myself forget about it or not really even think that it's a problem. Put, me t- put my faith to the test. That my faith may be strengthened. Prove me as you proved Abraham on Mount Moriah. God tested Abraham's faith, even tested him sorely, but did so in order to purify and strengthen that faith. Dispel, O Lord, any illusions I might entertain about myself. What a petition! What a truly spiritual petition. What a petition that only the child of God can make by grace because by nature we like our blindness. By nature we don't want to see what sin might be hiding in the inner recesses of our lives or that dark corner of our life. By nature we love to compartmentalize. We like to take this part of our life And there, I'm a person of integrity and we focus on that. And we think that because I do such a good job over here, I can have this little box over here and I don't really need to worry about that. And there I might put a pet sin. And there I might enjoy that sin and I might walk in it. And I might cut myself some slack about keeping that sin over here because I have this box over here, this part of my life where I strive to do so much. I strive to do so well. Surely this excuses this. David recognizes that about himself. And he prays this petition out of a godly desire 
for the power of God to counteract that impulse of his fallen nature. Search me inside and out. Prove me. Try me. Show me what is in me. And by thy grace, refine and purify me. There you see what the believer's godly desire for growth in grace and holiness looks like. David is not content just to see what he sees now. He wants his blinders ripped off. He has a genuine desire to know his sins more deeply, that he might repent more deeply and turn more fully. He expresses earnestness here to grow in holiness, to be tempered by the hands of God more and more into his image. There's nothing of smug self-righteousness in this psalm. But humility, deep humility, even as David makes mention of the fruits of grace in his life, deep humility and a restless hunger for the righteousness of God, for grace upon grace, glory to glory. And that's the disposition that the Lord's Supper form is talking about. That's the disposition. Self-examination is meant to cultivate in us as we prepare to come to the table. So that we come having seen our sin more deeply or having seen it in a new light and abhorring ourselves before God, confessing it, but not sinking then into despair. That's not what self-examination is for. It's not meant to torture us. It's a healthy exercise. From seeing our sin, we run straight to the cross of Christ. The perfect one, the shed, whose shedding of His blood covers our sin and wipes away our guilt. And contemplating the promises of the Gospel, pondering the finished work of Christ, awakens in our hearts a renewed sense of this earnestness, this fervent zeal to live holily unto God that we see here in the psalmist. So to apply this petition for examination, Let us in a focused way make this petition our petition this week. It shouldn't be just this week. Self-examination is an exercise that we ought to engage in throughout our lives as Christians. Christians are to be watchful, reflective, a, a people who ponder their steps and are watchful over their inner and their outer life. But self-examination from or self-examination prior to the Lord's Supper is useful in that it helps train us to do this every day of our lives. How are we walking before the Lord? Are we seeing ourselves clearly? Or are we 
putting our life into different boxes. I'm living in integrity over here. So my sin over here doesn't matter so much. I'm good. The call to self-examination bids us to set aside that self-delusion. Bring the spotlight of God's Word and shine it upon our whole life. With the Word, the Spirit will do its, His examining work. Show us our own hearts. That's good. That's healthy for us. And as we see something more of our sinfulness, and we see something more of our need for Christ, we make the words of the psalmist in verse 11 our own. You see there, put together, that resolve to grow in grace, that resolve to walk in integrity, coupled with an understanding that I can't of myself. And that whatever good I have is a gift of God. It's not something that gets me anywhere with God. I need His mercy. I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful unto me. When we come to the Lord's Supper, in that visible word of the Gospel, we will see God's answer to our prayer and to our cry in that Gospel word that we see and taste. The merciful redemption of God given in the sacrifice of His Son. And the power of God that comes to us through Christ that nourishes and feeds our souls unto everlasting life and empowers us unto newness of life. Make this prayer your own. Prayer for examination. Not in fear. Not in fear. That's another important application. When David, when David prays, examine me, O God, and prove me, and try my reins, and try my heart, he's not terrified of what God is going to disclose to him. He's not terrified that after this examination, God is going to destroy him. No, this is in the context of that relationship of love and friendship, that covenant relationship that David mentions in verse Three, thy loving kindness is ever before my eyes. David knows he'll see more of his sin and that that will grieve him. But it will not drive him to despair as if God is going to reject him. No, this examination is a healthy and a wholesome thing. It aids him in his Christian life. It aids him in the pursuit of His goal in all of life, which is to glorify God and to honor Him. So David prays this not in terror, but with an earnest desire. Examine me. Prove me. That I may be bettered by it, and Thy name may be glorified. Well, finally, let us notice that this psalm 
especially its opening petitions, have confidence, a confident petition. David's petition is bold. His prayer for vindication is bold. His prayer for examination is bold. And David can make such a bold petition because of the gospel confidence that lives in his heart. Again, verse 3 expresses that so beautifully. Thy loving kindness is before my eyes. And that word loving kindness is a very, very rich word. As one commentator says, it is an Old Testament word with a heavenly savor. A heavenly taste and smell to it. It's a word that literally means steadfast, loyal love. It pulls together the meanings of love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, loyalty, and packs them all together in one word. It's the Old Testament's choice word to describe God in His covenant relationship with us, His people. Who He is. What He is like. That's who God is. And that's what upholds David as he faces the unjust accusations, the maligning, the persecution of his foes. And as he prays for the Lord to search his life and to search his heart, to show him his sins, stands out in the forefront of his mind as the unchanging, loving kindness of God. That all of these things must and will serve his good. God is his friend sovereign. David and we are God's friend servants. And the loving kindness of our God, that is our bedrock. When we are grounded upon that loving kindness, we shall not slide. God's character fills David with confidence. God's promises fill him with confidence. May it be so with us. Ultimately, David's confidence is rooted in Christ, who David looked ahead to. David speaks in this psalm, but ultimately it's Jesus Christ who is the only one who lived a life of perfect integrity, for whom everything in these verses is perfectly true. Jesus walked in God's truth. Jesus did not sit with vain persons. Oh yes, He sat with sinners, but He sat with them to bring God's grace and salvation to them, not to participate in their sin. Jesus was not a dissembler, nor did He go with them. He did not sit and join the wicked in their devices. Jesus loved the habitation of God's house, the place where His honor dwelt. And Jesus suffered Himself, suffered His soul to be gathered with sinners that He might deliver us. Though He was the man of perfect integrity, yet He was condemned and judged guilty that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. And that's the testimony of the Lord's Supper. That's the testimony of the Gospel. And that's what gives us confidence. Confidence in all of our Christian life. When we stumble and we fall into sin, and we often do, Go to that cross of Christ. 
confident of forgiveness. Confident that this wasn't the last straw. And now God is going to cast me away. Confidence rooted in Christ and in the covenant faithfulness of our God. There, there's the truest motive for a life of integrity and godliness before God. It's faith looking at who God is and what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. The wonder of God's grace. The marvel at salvation in Christ. That's the mother of true piety. Not fear of judgment. Not dread of the law's curse but a heart that has expanded and swollen with gratitude for grace that I don't deserve. That kindles godly resolve to walk in integrity. Confidence. Confidence in Christ. So come to the table, beloved. Confident. Confident in Him. Pray for examination and examine yourself with that confidence. We rest assured, as the form said, we rest assured that no sin or infirmity which still remaineth against our will in us can hinder us from being received of God in mercy and from being worthy partakers of this heavenly supper. Let us come that confidence. Amen. Faithful God, we thank Thee for the instruction of this psalm. The petitions of the psalmist, may we make them our own. And in the week ahead, we pray that Thou wilt search us, that Thou wilt examine us, try us, shine the searchlight of Thy Word upon our hearts and our lives, that we may see our sinfulness, We may see where we may be walking contrary to Thy commandments and by Thy Word and Spirit turn us. Turn us away from that sin and turn us to Christ. And by faith beholding Christ and His work, may our hearts be filled with confidence that our salvation is not of works of righteousness we have done, but of His finished work for us. May our hearts also swell with thankfulness such that we are resolved henceforth to live unto Thee. May we so come in that proper spirit to partake of the Holy Supper for the strengthening of our faith and saving fellowship with Thy Son, Jesus Christ. This we ask in His name.